0: I'm Craig Lawless. I'm Kevin Garcia-King. And this is Sounds Like Infrastructure. In March 2020, Formula One was getting ready for the first race of a new season in Australia. And with safety measures for COVID-19 in place, the race was ready to go ahead as planned. Then,
1: news broke that McLaren was pulling out. A member of their team had tested positive for coronavirus. Soon after, organisers decided to call the entire race off. As the pandemic grew, it wasn't long before even more races were cancelled. First it was France, then the Netherlands, then Azerbaijan,
0: Singapore and Japan all followed.
1: But even with all these cancellations, there was still hope that organisers could salvage some sort of racing calendar for 2020. According to the rulebook, only eight races would be needed to do
2: that. So Formula One was trying to get a calendar together that would constitute a world championship and get a bit of money in still and just kind of keep everything rolling
0: and they did manage to keep things moving with an initial eight race calendar then in july organizers said they wanted to hold up to
1: 18 races at the same time more locations from the pre-pandemic calendar were being cancelled which meant that as formula one looked for replacement venues
2: there are a lot of late additions that were unusual
1: that's chris by the way
2: i'm chris medland and i'm a freelance f1 journalist and broadcaster
1: Some of these unusual additions included a first ever race in the Algarve, and other locations also got their first race.
2: We went to places like uh, Mugello that hadn't been on the calendar, uh, that hadn't hosted an F1 race.
1: Then, at the end of August, an announcement was made that Formula One was returning to a venue it hadn't been to in almost a decade. They were returning to Turkey.
2: The opportunity opened up. Turkey were like, we want to host a race, uh, agreed a deal and that must have been confirmed probably about six weeks, five weeks before the race was actually due to happen
0: It was actually more like eight or nine weeks but as you can imagine even that isn't a lot of time which makes the next decision even more baffling The race organisers decided they would completely relay the whole track
2: Yeah, some last minute resurfacing took place to make sure it was in good nick so they thought um, and that actually created a load of problems but it was entertaining at least Entertaining for anyone watching the race For
0: the drivers, well, they hated it on the day of the race, it's raining, like heavy rain. The lights go out and as the cars approach the first corner,
2: the first few got through cleanly.
0: But then two drivers, Esteban Ocon and Valtteri Bottas, suddenly spin off the track.
2: There was a bit of contact that caused the spin further back, but the, lev- the grip level was so low that then anybody who reacted to the spin in front lost it as well. So there was a few, a few swapping ends just because they panicked essentially. Um, and that just showed how yeah, there was barely any grip for them at the first corner.
1: This lack of grip was one of the main things that drivers were talking about after the race. Even though it was the race that Lewis Hamilton claimed his 7th world championship in, the track, not the drivers, was stealing the headlines. Something had gone wrong between the moment they relayed the track
0: and the moment the race took place. Something that made the grip almost non-existent. And people said that it was the fact that the track didn't have enough time to cure. But the asphalt experts we talked to said that the curing process doesn't really affect the grip. It was actually something else that was going on.
1: So, we wanted to find out. On this episode of Sounds Like Infrastructure, we get to the bottom of what happened in Turkey and what left the drivers with so little grip that day. We find out how they fixed that problem
0: and also look at what happens when you're forced to refund 50,000 fans who've all turned up to watch a race that then gets cancelled. Because your surface is so bad. That's what happened at Silverstone in 2018. We've got that story, Turkey, and the tricks used to lay the perfect racetrack surface, next. To find out why the drivers couldn't get any grip on the freshly laid surface in Turkey, we rang up Fernando Moreno, an asphalt expert from the University of Granada in Spain, where he co-heads the Laboratory of Construction Engineering. And he told us that, to understand the problem, you've got to understand that asphalt is basically made of two things. Aggregates and bitumen.
3: We, we are going to have gravel in the coarse aggregate, and we are going to have sand in the fine aggregate. And also uh, a small part of that is even dust, no? that we call filler. The aggregates make up about
0: 95% of the weight of asphalt, and they're the key to making a tire grip to a surface.
3: There are two main mechanisms that makes grip possible, that are called roughness or indentation and the molecular adhesion. That's
0: roughness and molecular adhesion. When the tire rolls along the asphalt it strikes the aggregates
3: and deforms ever so slightly. And so this penetration of the asphalt surface into the tire generates asymmetric deformation that causes a force field with a tangential resultant force that opposes skidding.
0: In other words, it generates grip. Which is why F1 drivers heat up their tires. Warm tires deform more and touch more of that sweet, sweet aggregate.
1: And the reason you get more grip when more of the rubber hits the aggregates is because of something called molecular adhesion.
3: Molecular adhesion is driven by partially bonds created between the polymers in the tire and the asphalt surface.
1: The part of the asphalt surface where the bond is being created is called the micro-roughness or microtexture of the asphalt.
3: Which is the texture inside the surface of each single aggregate.
1: These bonds generate friction and grip. When you remove the bonds, you get something like what happened in Turkey. In Turkey, the bitumen, which is the glue that keeps all the aggregates together, also form a thin layer on top of the aggregates, which made molecular adhesion much more difficult.
3: If we uh, pave the race track, we are going to find a film of bitumen that is coating the aggregate and is hiding this micro roughness of the aggregate. So we are not going to have molecular addition, so we are losing one of the phenomena that, that produce grip.
0: Fernando thinks that Turkey's problem was that the layer of bitumen coating the aggregates hadn't worn down enough before the race. To make it worse, it rained, which made it even less grippier. And to add to all of these problems, Pirelli provided tires based on the information they had of the track before it was resurfaced. And they hadn't been given
1: enough time to get the right tires into the hands of the teams. When Formula One came back to Istanbul the following year, the race organizers had been busy improving the grip. And they did this through something called water blasting, which is essentially getting out a giant pressure washer and pummeling the surface with water to expose the aggregates.
3: Water blasting is a solution that we are going to use when we have no money or time to repave uh, a slippery surface. So the best option to, to correct uh, a slippery racetrack is to, to repave again and use the correct asphalt layer, to use the correct asphalt material that, that increase the, the grid. That means that we need a, an asphalt layer with a high micro macro roughness.
1: So how did the drivers react a year later to the water blasted surface in Turkey? Well, Chris told us that they quite liked
2: it. Because the track surface got washed and cleaned. Um, there's a lot more grip. It was, you know, the, the surface itself had matured as well over the, the following year. So the drivers loved it and it's quite a smooth track. Um there's a few bumps here and there that cause a few issues, especially when it's wet, but um not a huge amount. So then Mercedes were able to run their car closer to perfect and they're very, very quick. And it's partly due to the way they run the rear of their car and their suspension and then the aerodynamic performance was so good that they were much quicker in a straight line then they went to austin and the bumps were so severe there you had to run the car higher and a bit softer to deal with those bumps and it meant that they couldn't get it into the same window where they could get this high top speed so their relative competitiveness seemed to change quite a lot between the two races and that was a big chunk of that was down to the track surface
0: what Chris is getting at is that drivers and teams become frustrated with minute details in the surface of a track because it can be the difference between running your car at its most efficient or not. That's why when Formula One arrived in Silverstone in 2018, there was another disaster brewing. A little like Austin, teams were not happy with the bumps in the surface.
4: Now you could argue that the bumps should be part of it, and and, and they should be, but there's obviously... Um, extremes. And um, the the examples of Silverstone in 18 and Austin for the MotoGP this year were too far. They went too far. That's Damien Smith. And I'm a freelance motorsport journalist and I work for Motorsport Magazine and Autocar primarily, but also some others as well.
0: And the story of Silverstone starts in 2018, when the track owners decided to resurface the track for the first time in quite a while.
4: Yeah, well, they, they resurfaced the circuit for the first time in about 20 years um, and they got it wrong, essentially. Um, and the, you know, that that year in 2018, the Formula One drivers were unhappy with the bumps. But come August, when the MotoGP guys arrived, that's when the real trouble hit. There was a lot of rain uh, and there was a, so much standing water, it was unrideable. Which meant that? To Silverstone's embarrassment, they had to cancel uh, the race and 50,000 wet spectators
1: went home very
4: disappointed.
1: Silverstone did refund those 50,000 MotoGP fans, but the big issue was what they were going to do to the circuit to fix it. They had, after all, just spent a fortune relaying it, but it was full of bumps, which fans in the stands could barely see.
4: To our eyes, looking at it from on our TV screen or or even at the circuit, it's quite, it can be quite hard to see bumps, but um, you have to remember that these drivers in in Formula 1 cars are They're very close to the ground, very little suspension travel. They feel everything. These cars are hugely reactive.
2: You feel it. like It only has to be a millimetre or two, but these cars are so hard, like stiffly sprung, that they start to sort of bounce over these braking points. That can also then lead to them locking up their tyres because the contact patch will change as it goes over a bump and it might be slightly off the track surface for a split second and the drivers are so hard on the brakes, that means that the brake makes the tyre go completely still and then when it makes contact again, it skids. Rather than, rather than rotates. Um, so that would then cause a flat spot on the tyre damage and you'd have to come in for a pit stop. So again, that's why it's problematic.
1: All these reasons are why Stuart Pringle, the managing director at Silverstone, made the decision to start again and completely relay the surface.
4: There's a company called Dromo and they basically scanned every millimetre of Silverstone um, and mapped every bump, every change of camber, every crown on the road, every little detail, and produced a map of the circuit in terms
0: of what needed to be done and how it could be improved. They then planed the problematic surface off the top, which, because it's Britain, was done in the rain. The actual laying of the surface, on the other hand, had to be done in dry conditions. So they had to do it in the summer, and the British Grand Prix
4: happens in the summer, so the timescale was ridiculously tight.
0: The reason the surface has to be laid in dry conditions is down to the fact that asphalt just doesn't like rain.
5: Okay, as you say, water is the enemy, always.
0: That's José Javier García, the managing director for Ditec Pesa, who are part of Ferrovial and supply asphalt to the company's projects around the world.
5: I'm chemist, and I have been working in the asphalt roads so for 20 years.
1: And there's a reason it's so important to lay asphalt in dry conditions.
5: If you have rain, this rain is decreasing very fast the temperature.
1: Javier told us it's because asphalt needs something called a progressive temperature control and its compaction, and...
5: In addition, water, and this is very important too, can also deteriorate the adhesion between the aggregates and the bitumen that acts as a glue. That's very important. The bitumen is the glue between the aggregates.
0: No glue means more potholes, so you can see why it was important to avoid the rain when laying the track at Silverstone. When they did finally lay the new asphalt at Silverstone, they worked with a company called Tarmac. And
4: Tarmac used automated machinery, which they don't get to use often on the public road. Again, for this reason that on the public road, you can't close a road to relay a surface because you, you have to just close lanes and it's quite hard to use this technology. But for a closed private land circuit, you know, um, they had these big machines laying basically three surfaces, three layers of surface uh, dictated by... What the, the data that dromo had provided for them and the the tolerances were in the within the, the the depth of a pound
0: coin apparently and when an asphalt surface is being laid everything has to be done quite quickly
4: the actual tarmac that was that was made was a, was a special uh, formula of, of um, materials that was had to be trucked from where it was made in Bedford and North London two bases and it has to be laid quickly because obviously if it goes hard and cools,
5: you, you, you cut It's useless. This is like another race. You need to to achieve the perfect compaction of the pavement before the asphalt going down in the temperature.
0: And the wind can also play a big part in how much time you have to lay the asphalt, because the wind cools the asphalt down quicker. And so the time you have depends on the temperature outside and also the amount of wind.
1: So we asked Javier just how much time you have to get the asphalt down.
5: From the moment you put the the asphalt track in the lighting machine, more or less, 20 minutes. You have this time to line in the asphalt and compaction. If the wind is is higher, you you have a problem because it's more difficult. And if you are in a hot day, it's the opposite.
1: In Silverstone, not only did they have to deal with the elements, but they were also working against the clock because the Grand Prix was literally around the corner.
4: The final layer uh, was finished um, about two weeks before the Grand Prix. Now that doesn't leave a lot of time, uh, obviously for testing, uh, for curing, there's a curing process the, s- the surface needs to go through."
1: And so, Silverstone's director, Stuart Pringle, had his fingers crossed everything would go to plan when Formula One returned in 2019. A lot of money had been invested and the circuit's reputation was on the line. So you think it would have been a big deal. Actually, it was a non-story over the weekend. No one talked
4: about the surface very much after the first day, which was exactly what he wanted. He didn't want the surface to be a story at all. Um, he wanted it to you know, just be um, something the drivers took for granted. And sure enough, it succeeded. They did a great job with it, and it's now
0: you know, one of the best surfaces in Formula 1. In both Silverstone and Turkey, they decided to relay the track. But things are a little bit different when you're building a circuit from scratch. There's no preconception of what sort of surface you're going to be driving on, which means working hand-in-hand with the drivers and circuit owners to create the exact surface they have in mind for the track. And this is the situation Javier found himself in when he was working on a new track with Varrovia, the Dior 7 circuit in Madrid.
5: We were working in, in, in a little racetrack in, in Spain, in the south of Madrid, and this circuit is an extremely twisty circuit.
0: Because of its size, the track is mainly used for karting and motorbikes.
5: And GP World Championship riders use it as a training place.
1: The track constantly twists and turns. It's almost like one continuous corner. And so...
5: It was very demanding to build it because it's very difficult to move the large machine in a very close
1: curves. One of the other challenges Javier told us about was turning what the client wants into an actual track which is different to laying a motorway or working on the projects Javier normally works on.
5: For me it was very interesting because we usually in in motorways speak about numbers and the drivers speak about uh, sensation, feelings. So you need to transform this feeling into a number.
0: Those numbers that Javier is talking about are things like how much bitumen you use, what bitumen you use, the way you lay the asphalt and the number of voids, which are the spaces between the aggregate in the asphalt. More voids means better drainage, but it also means more grip.
5: For example, in Monza is a very soft pavement without too many voids. Which means slightly
0: less grip and more speed.
5: Another other circuits are with more number of voids.
0: But at the end of the day, drivers don't talk about voids.
5: They speak about feeling. I, I feel better in this curve than in this another curve. It's difficult. <laughs>
1: So how does Javier or anyone laying a new track go about this? Well, first they have to talk to the client to see what type of surface they want. Do they want a faster surface or a surface with more grip? Then they head to the lab. We can
5: do several simulations in the lab. We can test in the lab in little pieces, more or less 20 kilograms or something like this of pavement.
1: After working on the asphalt in the lab, they head back to the racetrack where they do more testing.
5: In my opinion, the best solution is to surface one part of the circuit, enough to be proved by the drivers. That's the testing period. And once the driver has been speaking about his opinion and so on, you can finalise the design process. Because it's very difficult to imagine what the drivers want in the lab.
0: So, Javier usually recommends that they lay a percentage of the track and test on that to get the driver's opinions. Maybe 10 or 20% of the whole circuit because he knows of stories of when whole circuits have been laid and tested, only to find there's not enough grip. And then they have to go and do a whole water blasting session like what they did in Turkey, which is an extra expense that can be avoided with enough testing.
1: When Javier was laying this surface at the DR7 circuit in Madrid, he wasn't just laying a good surface to drive on. He was also laying a surface that would give drivers confidence in its grip, quality and drainage, so they can race the way they want to. And it's the same with the surfaces at Silverstone and Turkey. A good, reliable surface means the teams
0: can focus on what they're good at, getting the most out of their cars. That's why they complain so much when there are bumps or small issues.
2: Absolutely. It's like one of your points you were saying about, is it just drivers looking for the perfect surface? And it is, but it's because the imperfect surface means they can't run their race as quickly as they want to. And Formula One is such a overanalyzed sport, really, in terms of details and data, that engineers are always looking at, Well. If that bump wasn't there, we could run the car a little bit lower so we'd get better aerodynamic performance and we'd be quicker in a straight line and that would protect the tyre uh, performance because with more downforce, we'd be able to corner more quickly without stressing the tyres and therefore we can run longer and make a pit stop later. Uh, and an engineer just wants the car to be able to run perfectly. And, and the weakest point isn't actually the track, it's the driver. They, If they could, they take the driver out and have a computer do it because they know exactly how best it would perform. So uh, yeah, that's why you hear all these complaints because... You know, the engineers are trying to find a way of what making the car perform at its optimum and things like a bump in the track is something that takes it away, you know, a step away from that. and everything kind of rolls in and they're all minute things, but they're all looking for a competitive advantage against each other.
0: In recent years, the cars have gotten faster. The standards of surfaces have gotten better, and in Formula One, a lot more is at stake. So engineers and drivers will continue to find a competitive advantage any way that they can. That could be tires drivers, or, in this case, the asphalt that they're racing on.
1: Sounds Like Infrastructure is a collaboration between Ferobia and Veleta Media. Our team includes Craig Lawless, José García Huaita, Paloma González, Arancha Gulías, Bethany Ashcroft, and myself, Kevin García King. Craig also edited the
0: episode. A big thanks to Damien, Chris, Fernando and Javier for helping us understand the crazy world of asphalt. And to Bernard and Daniel Kilpatrick for sending us on the articles that got this whole story moving in the first place. If you like the podcast and want more episodes, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also follow Ferovial on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And don't forget to check out the Ferovial blog for more stories like this one. I'm Kevin Garcia-King. I'm Craig
1: Lawless. And this is Sounds Like Infrastructure.